This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, that in him all of our significant problems are resolved because he paid the penalty for sin. By faith alone in him we have eternal salvation. And at the instant of our regeneration, among the many other things that take place, he gives us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and also makes a dwelling place within us, makes our bodies a temple for the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his provision of salvation, he has also given to us everything we need for life and godliness so that all that we, whatever we face in life, whatever happens, we know that we have the comfort of God the Holy Spirit and we have the grace provision of our Lord Jesus Christ to sustain us in and through any and all circumstances and situations. Father, as we continue our study about the life of our Lord, we pray that we might be uh, encouraged and strengthened spiritually through the things that we study. We might gain a greater appreciation and love for our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're continuing our study on the life of Christ. We're watching the life of Christ through the lens of Matthew. But I'm taking time, and I will on occasion take time to correlate events in Matthew, especially with events in Luke. Luke is the only gospel of the four that maintains a sort of a strict chronology of events, even though Luke does not tell us everything that is in, that we're told about in all of the Gospels. There's no one Gospel that is sort of complete. We have certain things in, given to us in Matthew. Matthew is the Gospel that focuses on Jesus as the King of the Jews, whereas Luke is the Gospel that focuses on Jesus as uh, the Son of God, I mean, excuse me, as the uh, son of uh, uh, son of man who is a savior for the whole world. Uh, Matthew looks at the life of Jesus, especially the infancy area, through the uh, lens of Joseph and the lens of Christ's Davidic royalty. Not that these are ignored by Luke, but Luke looks more through the lens of Mary. And so as we come to Luke chapter 2, we're going to see some uh, aspects related to Joseph and Mary that are not given to us in, <clears throat> in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And so I want to give you a little bit of a chronology here so we can put these things together. In the last couple of lessons, I focused on the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem, the uh, <clears throat> the arrival of the shepherds, and then last week we looked at Matthew 2, 1 through 11, at the arrival of the Magi. However, there were some things that took place between the shepherds and the arrival of the Magi that you don't normally recognize, but they are there if you go to the second half of the of, of, of Luke chapter 2. So giving you a breakdown here, first of all, the shepherds visit Jesus. Following that visit, Jesus on the eighth day following the Mosaic law is circumcised. That's Luke 2.21. Following that, 40 days after his birth, Mary and Joseph then take the baby Jesus to the temple for presentation at the temple. There he is met by uh, uh, Simeon and Anna who prophesy about Jesus and the Messiah. Why are there two? Because two witnesses confirm a truth according to the Mosaic law. So there are the two witnesses, a male and a female, and then uh, it is after that that the Magi arrive because if the if we look at the Matthew account of the arrival of the Magi, there is the warning about Herod that comes when they're still in the vicinity of Bethlehem just after their visit. They are told to go home a, a different way, and an angel appears to Joseph and tells Joseph to flee to Egypt. That uh, That must take place sometime after the events of Luke 2. So there's at least uh, 40 days between the uh, arrival of the shepherds and the arrival of the magi. That's something that's not brought out in uh, uh, when in a lot of discussions about the, the chronology of the and the relationship of the shepherds to the magi. It is after that that we have the flight to Egypt. And then there's the slaughter of the innocents, Herod dies, and then an angel appears to Joseph to tell tell him that it's okay to return to the land, and they return from Egypt to Nazareth. That gives you a basic framework. Now, when we come to Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we see another dimension of a verse I brought up earlier, and that is uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Frequently, I cite this verse to indicate God's perfect timing, of providing a Savior when the fullness of time came. The arrival of Jesus as the Messiah was not uh, a happenstance. It was not just uh, a circumstantial. That It was part of, a God, uh, of God's plan, and he had worked for approximately 4,000 years to bring the human race and specifically the Jewish people to a particular point in time for the arrival of the Messiah. Part of that included the political environment uh, under Rome and under the uh, reign of Caesar Augustus. We have the what was known as the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which endured throughout most of the first century and into the second century, which guaranteed a time of peace and stability within the Roman Empire. It was a time of prosperity where there were uh, great highways that had been built and roads, which allowed for the rapid spread of the gospel 
following the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we emphasize often the first half of this verse, that the perfect timing of the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second half is significant also. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, That last phrase, born under the law, is often overlooked. But we see in Luke this emphasis upon the obedience of Mary and Joseph, the obedience of the family to the Mosaic law. Jesus Christ is born under uh, the, the time period, the authority of the Mosaic law. And later in his ministry, we'll see that one of the accusations that the uh, Pharisees brought against him was he sought to destroy the law. The reality was, as he said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And in every area of his life, he fulfilled the mandates of the Mosaic law. So he's born under the law. And so we see that in this, in this uh, chapter, in this passage, that first of all, this involves the circumcision of the infant. That's described in chapter 2, verse 21, uh, on the eighth day as prescribed by the Mosaic law. Following that, at 40 days after birth, there is the presentation of the infant, which also includes bringing a sacrifice on the part of Mary and possibly Joseph for uh, cleansing after the birth of a son. This was also mandated by the Mosaic Law. Then there's the prophetic confirmation by two witnesses described in Luke 20, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 38, uh, Simeon and Hannah. Hannah is the Hebrew name. In the Greek, it's also Hannah. There's a rough breathing mark, but in, unfortunately, like uh, the English were wont to do, when they anglicized her name, they changed it to Anna, when in fact that's an, that ignores the initial uh, rough breathing mark there, and so her name is actually Hannah, not Anna. And then the passage concludes in verses 39 and 40 with their return to Galilee. So at the beginning, we see this emphasis on his circumcision. In chapter 2, verse 21, we read, When eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus is uh, goes through a bris ceremony. The br- term bris is a Yiddish term. For the Hebrew word Brit Mila, Brit Mila means the covenant of the circumcision. Brit is, uh, the first word is from Berit, which is the Hebrew word for covenant. So Brit Mila means the covenant of the circumcision, and it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. There are two reasons that Jews are to, were to be circumcised at that time. The first had to do with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant required all Jewish males to be uh, circumcised as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was considered uh, con- considered blasphemy if that was not uh, did not occur. In Genesis 17:10, God instructed Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations 
he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. So this is a universal law that applied to every male in Israel was to be uh, was to be circumcised. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant reiterated this and stated it in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. Now, these three verses are important for helping us understand all that's going on in, in Luke 2, 21 through 24, because you have two events described there in verse 21. You have the circumcision uh, of Jesus, and in verses 22 through 24, the purification uh, sacrifice and the presentation of Jesus at the temple after 40 days. Now, the basis for that is in Luke 12, uh, 2 through 4. Uh, Luke uh, verse 2 says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. This is why it's the eighth day before there's the, the, the circumcision. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. This is ritual uncleanness. This is not saying that she's dirty or filthy or it's not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that somehow the Bible has this sexist orientation and God is down on women. If the, uh, a, a woman gave birth to a daughter, there's 80 days before the uh, purification ritual. For a male, it's 40 days. Again, this doesn't, none of this has anything to do with any kind of uh, sexism or bias against women. It has to do, all, all of these things have to do with something related to sin and teaching about sin. In the Garden of Eden, it was the woman who uh, sinned first. And so that is the basis for why there is an 80-day uh, p- period of ritual impurity if she gives birth to a woman and a 40-day if she gives birth to a man. And all this goes back to that the original fall and the circumstances of the original fall. Uh, there is also uh, the reason there's a ritual impurity there is because part of the penalty for uh, sin in the garden was that the woman would endure increased pain and labor and hardship after uh, because of sin. The Hebrew is extremely precise there, indicating that there was an increase in that. It was not that there was no pain beforehand. It was obviously some discomfort. People have uh, odd views on pain. We know that Scripture teaches that there will be, be no more uh, sorrow or pain uh, or tears in, in eternity future. But I had a dentist a long time ago that, that uh, was also a deacon in my church. We had some lengthy conversations. His orientation was on pain. Pain is a function of our sensory nerves. And we think of pain only in, in, in terms of the negative, but pain is also a warning to us that we're uh, touching something or that is harmful to us. So this idea that if we, we need to clarify our idea of what it means not to have pain or discomfort because it's not that we lose our, our tactile senses. It's that there is the, the extremes of that are removed in terms of doing, uh, uh, doing harm. So there was discomfort related to childbirth, but it wasn't what women experience today. That is the result of the curse, the result of the fall. And so because of uh, 
uh, of that, the process of giving birth and the pain associated with it is related to the curse of sin. And so anything that is a reminder of the judgment of sin is uh, proscribed as something that makes you ritually unclear under the Mosaic law. This is why you find in the and the dietary laws has absolutely nothing to do with nutrition or diet. Uh, because One reason we know that is because in one day God made it clear to Peter that all of those animals were now uh, uh, permissible to eat. It wasn't because they suddenly changed or that people learned how to properly cook pork or how to properly cook lobster or anything else. It was that the whole purpose was to teach something uh, about ritual. And most of the animals that were proscribed as food under the Mosaic law had, uh, were, were scavengers, and they were eating that which was, which was dead. And under, under uh, uh, scavenger-type uh, conditions, and so that rendered them ritually unclean. It's a reminder of death as the penalty for sin. So all these things were, were, were basically training aids or visual aids uh, for teaching about, the, uh, about sin and how extensive sin was in our experience. So the same thing is true with the ritual impurity of a woman when she gave birth. And if the husband helped, which is likely in the case with Joseph, then he too, because of coming in contact with blood, would have been also rendered uh, ceremonially impure. And so he too would have uh, needed to go for purification. And this is why we read in, in the text, when the days of, of and, and, and if you've got a new King James, it probably says, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. Actually, there's a textual variant there uh, in, in many manuscripts that states that uh, when the days of their purification, it's a plural instead of a singular, when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought, see, it picks up that plural. There's no textual variant there with the verb. The verb is clearly a third-person plural, so it, it, it would be grammatically uh, dissonant if you go from a singular to a plural pronoun. So it should read, when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And it was at that time of that presentation to the Lord that they would have brought the, the appropriate sacrifices uh, for purification. This is what we read about here in Luke, I mean in Leviticus 12:4. On the eighth day, 12:3 tells us about the eighth day is the day for circumcision. Verse 4 says, "She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled." So once that time was was completed, then they would come to offer a sacrifice. And in verse uh, uh, two, uh, Luke 2.23, we read, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord. This is from, as we'll see in a second, Exodus 13.2, that the firstborn male was to be consecrated or set apart to the Lord. And so this is part of that presentation ritual at the temple. And at that time, they would bring a sacrifice 
And we're told that there were two options. One was to bring a lamb, and the other was if you were impoverished or in uh, financial straits, then you could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. And Luke 2.24 says they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. This is one indication we have that during this time, uh, Joseph and Mary were in financial straits. Now, this is before they received the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, from the Magi. Exodus 13.2 is a passage talking about consecrating or setting apart the firstborn to the Lord, and this is what's taking place at this particular time in, uh, in the temple. There are actually three things that are combined here in Luke 2, 20, uh, 22 to 24. First of all, there's the purification ceremony uh, 40 days after birth. Second, there's the presentation of the firstborn to the Lord, according to Exodus chapter 13, 2. And then third, there's the dedication of the firstborn to the Lord's uh, service, uh, following the pattern of Hannah offering uh, her son, her infant son Samuel to the Lord, as described in the first two chapters of first Samuel. Uh, in the in the flow of the context of Luke, it is clear that that this is the kind of thing that is going on. There is a dedication uh, of Jesus for in terms of his messianic uh, messianic ministry. And this becomes clear because of what happens as they approach the temple. As they are coming into the temple probably in the one of the outer courtyards because Mary could not go into the inner courtyard. She could only go as far as either the courtyard of the women or the courtyard of the Gentiles. And it was at that location that they are met by this first prophet whose name is Simeon. Now, we don't know anything more about Simeon than what we read uh, read here in the text. We know that he is quite old, probably somewhere close to a hundred years of age, and that by special revelation, God has informed him that he is going, not going to die until he sees the Messiah, who is described here as the consolation of Israel. We're told in verse 25, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just or righteous, Dikaios. He was righteous and devout. The term there for devout indicates that he is a, a faithful Old Testament saint. He's faithful to uh, ritual observance in the temple. He's a faithful believer. And he is waiting for the, and the term that is used here is he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a title that summarizes many of the prophetic passages uh, in the Old Testament related to the uh, ministry of the Messiah. The term consolation translates the Greek word paraklesis. That's the same word that's used to, and is translated as the comforter in relationship to the Holy Spirit when Jesus promised that another comforter would come uh, to the disciples in uh, John chapter 14. He uses this same word. So he is designated as the Messiah. He's designated as a uh, as the comforter or the consolation of Israel, and this is uh, indicated in a number of Old Testament uh, Old Testament passages. Um, it was a term that described the hope of deliverance that Israel had in passages such as Isaiah 40 verse 1, 
Isaiah 49.13, Isaiah 51.3, and Isaiah 51.18. These are terms that focus on the role of the Messiah, the servant, as the one who would come to deliver Israel. And this is at a time when Israel was going through much uh, uh, calamity. Much of it was brought on by their own negative volition. And so they were in economic straits. They were in uh, a time of military collapse and defeat. They were experiencing a lot of the different cycles of discipline at this time because they had uh, disobeyed the Lord. And so nevertheless, God in his grace provides one who will comfort them and who will deliver them. In the same way, we go through times in our lives when we face a lot of uncertainty and we face a lot of, of instability. We face uh, uncertainty on a personal level in many different ways. We can face some sort of financial disaster or health disaster. We could face uh, some, some sort of problem due to weather. We can face any number of things that happen. Everything seems to be going along fine, and we can be involved in anything from an automobile accident to uh, some sort of a health crisis, and life suddenly becomes very uncertain. And life is always changing, but we have comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our comforter and has sent the Holy Spirit also as a comforter. And in the same way that he is a comfort and consolation to Israel and would promise to sustain Israel in times of crisis, he is also one who sustains us in times of crisis. So the term... Uh, Consolation of Israel is a term that refers to the fact that he is the one who solves our problems. Another term that's used by the rabbis uh, later on to refer to the Messiah was the term Menachem in Hebrew, Menachem, which means comforter. So this idea runs all through uh, prophetic literature as well as the literature in the early uh, Second Temple period. Uh, so the, as, in, as we see in Isaiah, the, uh, one of the primary missions of the servant is to uh, get, provide comfort, aid, and deliverance for Israel, and not just for Israel, but also for the Gentiles, for the nations. And so he, he's waiting for the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, this is an important term here. It's not talking about an indwelling of the Spirit. It's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit in reference to a, a specific ministry related to God's plan for Israel. In the Old Testament period, up until the beginning of the church age, believers were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were given the Holy Spirit to enable them and strengthen them in certain tasks or roles in relation to the kingdom of Israel. So you had uh, those who were the uh, craftsmen and builders of the tabernacle and then the temple who were given the Holy Spirit to give them the skills to carry out their work. You had uh, a few kings, Saul and David, who are given the Holy Spirit to strengthen them and enable them in ruling the nation. You had some of the judges who had the Spirit, the Holy Spirit come upon them to give them military uh, uh, ability to defeat the enemies of Israel. You don't have the Holy Spirit given to anyone in the Old Testament 
for their spiritual life. That wasn't the role uh, just given for this kind of prophetic ministry, something related to God's plan uh, for the development of the nation Israel. And so this is the, the language that you have here uh, fits the pattern of the Old Testament that that the Holy Spirit is upon him in, in in this prophetic role. He is going to make an announcement in relationship to the Messiah when he sees the Messiah. And then Luke explains this in verse 26 by saying that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. If we change that from Christ to Messiah, we really catch the Jewish flavor of this until he had seen uh, the Lord, that is God the Father's Messiah, the promised Messiah in the in the Old Testament. So he would come into the temple on a regular basis. And this is what we read in verse 27. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Obviously, the Spirit is leading him and directing him in relation to this particular day and this particular event. And we read, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now, the the idiom to bless God, we don't bless God in the same sense that he blesses us. This is an idiom for praise for God. We find it often in the Psalms to bless God, and it simply means to praise him. And so that is what uh, Simeon is doing, and we see how he praises God. Notice he doesn't praise God by saying, praise God. He doesn't praise God by simply uttering hallelujah, which is the Hebrew for praise God. There is content to his praise. That's how we praise God is not by saying praise God, which is a simple command to do so. We praise God by describing what God has done in our lives and what his grace provision has supplied for us. And so in verse 29, we see the content of his praise. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. God has fulfilled his promise to Simeon. And the language here is very interesting. It's language that is used often of someone who has been given, a, 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 for example, a watchman who has been given a mission to go on guard duty. And now he is being relieved, uh, his time is up, and he's being relieved of his responsibility as a guard. And that is the imagery that is behind this. He says, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua. See, there's a play on words here. He would have said this in Hebrew, not in Greek or in English. And Yasha is the uh, Hebrew verb for uh, salvation, the noun uh, Yeshua, which is related to the, ver- the name Jesus, which is Yeshua. And so there's a play on words there. My eyes have seen Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples. Notice how it's not just a Jewish salvation. Luke, of course, his theme is that Jesus is the uh, son of... Uh, the son of man who is a savior for all mankind, not just Jews only. And so he's bringing in at this early stage of his gospel an emphasis on the role of Jesus in the salvation for all Gentiles as well as Jews. So he says in verse 31, you have prepared before the face of all the peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. 
Now, this is actually written in more of a, uh, a poetic form, as we see in much of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so we see a synonymous parallelism in the last verse between those two clauses. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles is parallel to the glory of your people Israel. So glory and light are seen as synonymous here. As we see the glory of God expressed in the Old Testament often, we refer to that as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is simply a term that means the dwelling of God. So it was the glory of God that was revealed at the tabernacle or temple when when God was dwelling there, and it was often seen in terms of a of a light and the manifestation of light. And the glory of God is often related to light. Light is a way, a metaphor that's often used in the Old Testament to illuminate us who are uh, human beings who are in darkness. Light, therefore, is always a metaphor for revelatory activity. There is something is breaking forth into the darkness of mankind, uh, exposing things with the light of truth. We see this imagery in messianic passages such as Isaiah chapter 60, uh, verse 1 and following in the Old Testament. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Notice the, 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 the uh, juxtaposition between light and glory in verse 1. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. They are in spiritual darkness. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So this is, he, when, when Simeon talks about this in verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, he is specifically saying this infant is designed to bring light. This is the Messiah who will illuminate the world and bring light not only to Israel, Israel, but to the Gentiles, and this will be the glory of Israel as Israel fulfills her mission in bringing forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John really picks up, and the Gospel of John really picks up on this emphasis on light in reference to the Messianic ministry. In John 1-4, in the opening uh, introduction and prologue to John, where he talks about uh, Jesus as the Logos, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He goes on to say by verse 4, In Him, that is in the Word, in the Logos, was life, and that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And then in verse 9 he says that the Word, that that, that is the Word, the Logos, that was the true light, which gives light to every man. And so Jesus as the light of the world is emphasized in many passages, and then he states it clearly in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus comes as Simeon announces, the light that God promised has arrived the Messiah is here. So this is one of the first witnesses, evidence that Jesus is indeed the uh, the Messiah. 
In Luke 2, 33 to 35, we see the reaction of Joseph and Mary to this announcement. They marvel, they wonder at these things that are spoken of him. Now, when I read these passages, I'm sure you're the same way. We always uh, stop and think, well, well, so much has happened already with Mary and Joseph. Uh, they've had angels appear to both of them to inform them of, of the birth of the Savior, the virgin birth. They've experienced these various miracles. They've by this time, the shepherds have have arrived, but I would imagine that as each event happens, they 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 just more and more in awe of all that God is doing through them and is provided uh, for them, and so they just stand in awe of God's plan and purpose as He is using them in His life. At this time, Simeon gives more information, and up to this point, it's all been positive, but now there's a a dark overtone that comes into his announcement. He says in verse 34, uh, Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What this means is that uh, he will bring a new point of division within Israel. There are those who will accept him, and that will be for their rising and their advance, and there are others who will reject him, and that will bring about their fall and their judgment. And as a sign of this, he will be spoken against. He will be, it's a foreshadowing of his rejection. And then he says to Mary in verse 35, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, what this means is not to be taken literally that a physical sword would pierce her soul or her heart or that she would be martyred, but that as she as a mother witnessed the rejection of her son, the suffering that he would endure uh, leading up to the cross and his death on the cross, that this would bring an especially intense pain to her as a mother uh, to observing those things. And then he, uh, Simeon goes on to saying that the hearts of many may be revealed because Jesus is the one, is the light of the word, the light of the world who reveals uh, our innermost thoughts to ourselves as he reveals a need for salvation uh, to us. And then we come to the second witness who is Hannah. As I said earlier, even in the Greek, there's a rough breathing mark there. It's anglicized to Anna, but it is actually Hannah. She's identified as a prophetess. She is one of uh, several prophetesses that are mentioned in the scripture, uh, including Miriam, the sister of, of Moses. And it seems that part of the role of the prophetesses, if we go through a study of them, uh, Deborah is considered as one who prophesies in Judges chapter 5, Often they are associated with the utterance of some sort of hymn or song to God. In fact, there's a couple of passages referring to those who sing praise to God as those who are prophesying. We think of prophesying only in a limited sense in terms of being given a revelatory message from God, especially about the future in some sense, and we limit the word that way. But it's used also in in reference to uh, the writing and singing of hymns of praise to God with reference to Mary, with reference to uh, 
um, Deborah. Uh, Huldah was another, sac- uh, another prophetess mentioned in the Old Testament, but little is said about her other than that uh, she was a prophetess. So here is uh, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher is one of the northern tribes, and often we speak of the ten lost tribes, but the way they got lost was because they were uh, removed from the northern kingdom during the time of the Assyrian invasion in 722. So if there really are lost tribes, we wouldn't know who was of those particular tribes, but she knows what tribe she's in. See, many of the Jews who lived in the north, when they uh, saw the uh, Assyrians coming from coming in for their invasion, they left and they went south, and so there's no such thing as the ten lost tribes. There are many, many Jews today who who know exactly which tribe they came from in terms of one of those uh, ten tribes from the north. And so uh, she comes to them. She's of great age. She had lived with her husband seven years after they were married from her virginity, and then she became a widow. Now, there's some uh, debate over the exact sense of the next passage. Some think she was a widow for 84 years, which would mean that she was well over 100 years of age at this time. Others think that this idiom means that she was a widow of about 84 years. She was about 84 years of age at this particular time. And she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So she, too, has a sense that she is going to see the Messiah. And in verse 38, we read, And coming in that instant, she saw the infant, she gave thanks to the Lord, and spoke of him, that is the uh, uh, the child Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here stands for the entire nation. So you have two witnesses that confirm uh, in the temple, the arrival of the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, and the Redeemer of Jerusalem. And then in conclusion, we're told that after they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord. See, Jesus was born under the law. He doesn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Now, If you're paying attention, then you realize this seems like a discontinuity here. Wait a minute, what about Egypt? Luke ignores that. He is summarizing what happens. He just skips over it. So uh, he just talks about their return to Egypt. This isn't a contradiction. This often happens in the gospel narratives. They just bypass certain things. Uh, that's not how we would write history or a biography, but as I pointed out at the beginning, the Gospels are Gospel tracts. They're expressing the good news of Christ. They're not histories in the modern sense of history, though they contain history and accurate history. They're, they're not biographies in the modern sense, though they contain biographical information. And so they often arrange their material in ways that uh, would not fit modern ways of historiography, but this was typical at that time. And so he just skips completely over uh, the, uh, th- their trip to, to, uh, to Egypt, and that would come between verses 38 and 39. And then in verse 40, we're told just a summary of Christ's childhood. Uh, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, 
and the grace of God was upon him. Next time, we'll look a little more at the infancy and his growth up to the time of his inauguration into the ministry with John the Baptist. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he came and entered into human history as a human being. And as a human being, he grew and matured spiritually, not on the basis of his deity, but on the basis of his own humanity, so that he could demonstrate to all the world that he was qualified to go to the cross, that, that in his spiritual life, he set a pattern and a precedent for our spiritual life today. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that uh, you don't have to do anything to make yourself savable. You don't have to do anything to somehow uh, create a favor toward you from God that is freely given. The only thing that you need to do is trust in him. That is simply expressed in the scripture is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ or accepting him as your savior, trusting that he died for your sin, paid the penalty in full so that he is the basis for your salvation, not anything that you or I do. Father, we pray that, that as the gospel has been made clear this morning, that those who need to respond will do so. And we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the uh, reality of Jesus' comfort for us and that we have the Holy Spirit who is our comforter, who is there to sustain us throughout all the trials and adversities of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.